0: Uh, For our second week, our scripture this morning is Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I love playing music. And that might come as a surprise to my parents, who, despite extraordinary efforts, could not get me to practice the piano growing up. It's because I needed to find the drums. And then once I found the drum, my parents went from pleading with me to to start playing to pleading with me to stop making so much noise. And I love I love playing music, being a musician for just the endless possibilities, the creativity. One of my favorite musical ideas in any song is the idea of dissonance. This idea where like, a note can be introduced to a melody, to a chord, to a song, and it sounds like it doesn't fit. It sounds wrong. It sounds like a mistake, but it's, it's actually not. And if you're willing to wait, if you're willing to let the, the melody, the progression resolve, you actually end up with like a really beautiful sound. And so actually, I want to illustrate that right now with my guitar, and I promise uh, I'm not going to start serenading you unless you want that. Uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to sing. Uh, I just want to I want to I want you to hear what dissonance is, and we're actually we're gonna we're gonna use dissonance later in a song we're gonna play this morning called Absent from Flesh. In the first chord of that song, it, this is this is it. This is what it sounds like. And so it sounds it sounds off, right? Sounds, that note doesn't fit um, until you finish the chord progression. It sounds it sounds nice. It sounds beautiful. The dissonance resolves into a major, a major chord. So you hear it at first, it's like that's off. And then when you let it resolve, it it sounds nice. And like I want to make the case that Christianity, what we believe, has dissonance to it. There are things that when you read the Bible, this is you, you hear that. Uh, and a lot of times that's why people like they stop uh they stop believing or they, they don't let the scriptures finish the story. It's okay. Don't worry about that. <clears throat> it's the one thing I didn't practice this week. Uh, nice. Uh, if you let it resolve, it sounds beautiful. But a lot of people, when they hear something dissonant with Christianity, uh, they, they either change what Christianity is or they stop believing. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to enter right into... Probably the biggest dissonance that our culture has with Christianity. A note that many outside the church and increasingly many inside the church find intolerable. And that is what the Bible says about human sexuality. And I realize it's like, oh, wait a minute. It's, it's Palm Sunday. Why are we talking about sex on Palm Sunday and here's the reason. one of our core commitments as a church is we we typically preach through whole books of the Bible, which means we end up as we do that on Sundays where it's like, oh maybe we wouldn't have chosen that if we hadn't preached through the Bible uh, you know sort of verse by verse. and yet that's a better problem than if you walked in every Sunday and it was like whatever Tim was feeling this week that's what we're going to hear about because if that was the case I would talk about the master's golf tournament for 35 minutes. This, does anyone want that? Because we, I'm ready for that. If we, no. Okay. Instead of yeah, amen, Tiger. Uh, anyway, that's uh, that's not what we do. We preach through the Bible, which means we end up with moments like like this. And yet, I would also say, I, like I find, like so many people have not really heard the biblical story on sex, sexuality, that I think it's important for us to tell because you're hearing a counter story relentlessly. In this world. And for, for us as a church to even like maintain with the amount of, of a counter story you hear daily, we'd have to preach on this weekly. When I mean, you hear a counter sexuality every day of your life, so like for a couple times a year, we're, we're gonna center in on that as a topic to try to give you a counter story than one you're gonna hear most of, of this week. And I just wanna own like the Bible sounds dissonant, it sounds off to the story that our culture tells about sexuality. And I want to talk about that. And I want, to, I want to talk about like three particular notes of dissonance, three things the Bible teaches about sex that our culture hears and is like, that is wrong, that is not right. Dissonant note one is, is this, and this is surprise you as a dissonant note, but this is, I, I don't think most of our culture thinks this way, and that is uh, that sex is God's idea. right? All those ideas that God is anti-sex, that he's up in heaven just really fretting that somewhere someone is having a good time and he must put an end to it. Like that, that image of God does not hold up to the scriptures. And it starts in verse 18, the first verse I read, where God looks at his creation. He looks at a creation of, of human beings that only includes the male gender at this point. There's no women. He says this. He says, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And we talked about this last week, that God looks at a world full of only men and his response to that world is not good. Kathy Richardson was all over that. One of the women in the room was like, not good. I, got, I knew that. I remember that. It's not good. A world with no women, it's not good. And so what does God do? He doesn't create a bunch of human beings. He doesn't just say, all right, you need, well, you need other human beings in your life. What he says is men in particular need a, a female complement to The male gender. And so God in creation of of females is something incredibly intentional. And so male and female, they're not throwaway categories. That was last week's sermon. Male and female are not throwaway categories. And you see this actually in in the Hebrew. There's a Hebrew word that appears twice in Genesis chapter 2. And the importance of this word is sort of lost in the English because it just sounds like a, a throwaway couple words. And it's, it's this, this phrase, fits for him. It's, that's one Hebrew word. It's actually three Hebrew words scrunched into one Hebrew word. And that, that phrase, a helper, fits for him, appears twice in Genesis 2. And the words fit for him, the words in the Hebrew, literally what that means. The first word is, is the same as. Right, which is God looks over creation and says, like, God, you know, this guy cannot be with animals. That, that doesn't work. So he needs something the same as. The second Hebrew word is different from. He needs something someone the same as, but also different from. And the third Hebrew word is, is hen. And so you get this very intentional creation of a being to complement the man. It's the same as, it's another human being, but it's different from. God doesn't want similarities in this relationship. He wants differences. So the same as different from him. And so that, that's what we get. And then what happens is the guy see, sees this woman, and we get our first love song. Right, before the radio and, and love songs today, before romantic stories, we have, that the man sings the first love song. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Right? Like this deeply intimate intentional creation of male and female. That's Genesis 2. But God goes further. This is what happens next. Therefore, and this is, I think this is, you could think of this as like God speaking over this new couple. Right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I'm gonna get graphic for a second. Because I think I think people miss what's happening in these two verses. All right? So the man leaves his father and mother, he holds he holds fast to his wife, they become one flesh, and they are naked. That like that is sex. That is sex being described on the second page of the Bible, that in the biblical story on page two, we get a fairly graphic depiction of what human sexuality is, all of which God intentionally crafts to make a man and then to make a woman who was the same as and yet different from the man and then puts them together sexually to create one flesh. And one flesh doesn't just mean the act of sex, which, I mean, it does, but there's another implication of that, which isn't here in Genesis 2, but it's later on. The one flesh in the male female relationship, it's not just about sex itself, it's also about the fact that every one flesh sexual act between a man and a woman can actually literally create a one flesh of the two, the two, the male, the female, and a child. My wife and I, we had a baby four, uh, three, four weeks ago. There's a one flesh representation now of our union together. And that, like, have you thought of the wonder of that? One of my favorite authors, Indy Wilson, he has this this sort of strange book called Notes from the Tilted World, but it's it's one of my favorite, and he has this throwaway line where he says this in his book. He said, I've seen a baby born, and um, I know what made it, but I'm not telling you'd never believe me. Do you have that, like, Genesis 2 presents sexuality and sex is this incredible, wondrous act, where Genesis 2, sex is actually like the reenactment of our very creation, Where the woman who was created out of the man, like a rib taken from the man, so this new being is created, they're reunited in intense pleasure and vulnerability and communion, and they're reunited into being one flesh. And this act is so important that when they reunite into one flesh, male and female, literally a new one flesh can be created where we actually, we act like God in the act of sex because we can create our own human life when we enter into a sexual relationship with someone of the opposite gender. God invented that. That's all his idea. And so to people who think like God is the cosmic church lady just frowning and furrowing his brow and anxious that someone is is having fun? And he's scolding at us. That is ridiculous. Genesis two would say that God is far closer to Barry White than Church Lady. <laughs> Some uncomfortable laughter there. It's like okay, There's no more Barry White references. Okay, you're you're safe from this point forward. <clears throat> Do you believe that about God? I think a lot of the reasons why people read the Bible and think dissonance is they think, like, the rules around sexuality the Bible has is because God, he's a scold. Or he is, he's a, he's a killjoy. He doesn't want us to have fun. Or even that, that now we can broaden his definition of sexuality because we have a better understanding of it than he does. But do you believe, like, God is this, this God of joy and pleasure who gave us something, this beautiful thing. Do you believe that about him? Sex is God's idea. That's one. And yet this dissonant note two uh, is the reason why many people think God could not have been the inventor of sex. And that is that the Bible has so many rules about our sexuality and how we, it is expressed. And so dissonant n- uh, note two is that sex is designed exclusively for marriage. Um, this is the, sec- the sticking point. Because in the Bible, the only place where sexuality is celebrated is in the context of, of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. This is an incredibly tense issue today, inside the church and outside the church, but, but even inside the church. And so I, I just want to start with Jesus. I'm going to start with Jesus because that's where we always start, right? That's who we follow. That's, he's our, our, our God, our king. And Jesus, at one point in his life, and we talked about this last week, I'm going I'm to dive into something else he was saying when he, he said this, but last week Jesus was asked, uh, what about divorce? You know, what, Jesus, what is your thinking on divorce? And here is how he answers that question in Matthew chapter 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus, he's doing two things here. The first is that he's he's identifying Genesis two as his authoritative understanding for marriage, right? Like he, I mean, we believe if you're a Christian, you believe Jesus is the Son of God. He could have said whatever he wanted here, and he, but he doesn't. He quotes Genesis two. He says, if you want to understand marriage, you have to go back to Genesis two. The second thing is is that Jesus doesn't. He could have quoted verses that said no divorce right? There's no divorce because you can't break the no divorce rule, but that's not what he does. Instead, what he does is he, he goes back and he, t- he reminds his listeners the story of why we have sex to begin with in Genesis 2. He answers a question about divorce with sex. And the first thing he does is he affirms the importance of male and female in creation, These aren't throwaway categories. These aren't interchangeable categories. Right, Male and female, he created them. Jesus, it says these categories matter. And the reason they matter is because when a man and a woman come together in sex, they become one flesh. And so sex was designed, according to Jesus, for the uniting of two people, male and female, to be united physically, emotionally, spiritually. And you can't just undo that that's why even in in, in places where Jesus per, permits divorce and says in these categories it's okay and he does permit categories for divorce what he's still saying is is like god when male and when men and women come together sexually in marriage like there's a uniting force that happens there that is so spiritual god is actually involved right what what god has separated let no man separate right god in some way is is combining those two human beings into one flesh and in divorce to rip those things apart like it's just it's it doesn't fit the story. That's what Jesus is saying. Right? Not that there's a no divorce rule. It's, that's not the story of, of sex. And when you try to live out a story that's opposite of Genesis 2, you're going to run into problems. And this understanding and, and take on Genesis 2 has been the Christian understanding of human sexuality for 2,000 years, and over the last 30, 40, 50 years, that, that view has changed and it has changed rapidly. To many, the story I told about, you know, about sexuality, Genesis 2, one man, one woman in marriage, that's it for life, that's seen today as, as not just wrong, but actually dangerous, repressive, harmful to, to people. And yet, I want, like, again, Jesus, he doesn't give out rules, he tells a story. A story about what sex is, what it's for, the one fleshing, the one, uh, the creation of, of this new entity between male and female, which God designed from the beginning in Genesis 2. To many, that story is now a dissonant, harmful note. A few years ago, uh, Missy and I we went to a concert uh, for one of our favorite singer-songwriters, a guy named Sufian Stevens. And we were at the Midland Theater in Kansas City. And, I mean, I got, I got on it, took it super early, was in, like, the third row of the concert. It was so exciting. I mean, it was right in front of the speakers, which for this drummer who doesn't have great hearing uh, anymore is, like, perfect. Like, just, bla- just blast me. Um, but, that, like, the band was, like, there was, this was, like, a trend of, like, this kind of uh, innovative idea in music. Which is where like, you would create white noise, and you just, like, make really loud white noise, and then you let it resolve into a song. And so they were doing this, but they got, like... Like, they were just making this, like, clanging, loud noise, which got so loud, like, I was, I was, I've never been more uncomfortable with the amount of sound pumping into my ears. So, actually, I cover my ears, like, and I can barely hear anything. I, I'm covering my ears. I'm thinking I'm going to die. Like, that's how loud this was. And I look up, and the security guard, who's sitting right in front of the, the speakers, he's got earmuffs on, and he's just laughing at everyone in the crowd, who's all, like, you know, trying to survive. And, I, like, I think that is a really good illustration of how like, our broader world looks at the church and how we talk about sexuality, which is that we're this, we're this loud, obnoxious noise that's harmful to people, and we have our earmuffs on, not listening, not responsive, and just laughing at, at the, the damage sort of done out in front of us. I, I think that's how a lot of people view the church in our take on, on sexuality, that for many in our culture, they, they think the way the church talks about this is harmful, is wrong. So what do we do with that? Because that, that pressure is not just coming outside of the church, it's now inside the church. Christians are saying, yes, you, like Genesis 2 can't be our story anymore. And I want to think about that as a church today. And I want to I start with three questions I would, everyone in this room should ask. Because I would assume in this room there's people coming from all different perspectives on, this, on these questions. But three questions I, you have to think about. And the first one is, what is, what is healthy sexuality? What is good sex for you? What's your definition of good sexuality? Question two is where did you get it from? Who taught it to you? Who gave you those ideas? And thirdly, if you're a Christian, if you're in the way of Jesus, how do the scriptures support your position, what you think? Because I would say our culture's view of sexuality outside the life of of the scriptures is that if two adults love one another are committed to one another, then categories like gender, uh, age, like those sorts of things, like those are largely irrelevant um, because what primarily matters is, is two adults who, all, who have desires for one another, and that, like, that's what matters. And so our culture's definition of sexuality would be desire plus consent equals freedom. Right, the two primary categories are what are your desires, what do you want, and is an adult consenting to that view? And that, that's very different than Genesis 2. Right then, the intentional creation of male and female, the intentional creation of this this uniting of two human beings into a one flesh reality, that's very different than, well, are your desires, what and who consents to those desires. And so, what we what we have, and every person in this room has this, you have this choice. You have to you have to wrestle through this choice today. Which is, will you will you accept our culture's redefinition of what sexuality is, or will you? Well, you do what Jesus did and, and receive Genesis two. It's your authoritative story. We all have that choice today, and all of us have enormous pressure on us daily to abandon Genesis two for our culture's redefinition of what sexuality is. Every Christian in this room will have to face with that. Cho- we'll have to face that choice. We are right now. And I remember the the first time that choice was just put in front of me. I was a, a sophomore in college. I was an RA. I was studying to be a pastor, and two. Of the guys who lived on my floor were both were both gay. And for the first time in my life, it was it was not a it was not just a theological question, like what does the Bible say? It was also like there's here are people, humans, um, next to me as I, I think this through and, and I heard the dissonance, right? And I, I wrestled with the question: can I take the Bible seriously here when it comes to what it says about human sexuality? And I, I wrestled with that question. And as I wrestled with that question, the thing i heard continually that that is said at a far more increasing rate today than it was said 15 years ago when i was in college which is this is you know it's like we just know more about sexuality today than the writers of the bible and they just said things and they did things about sex that like we just know now they're not right they're not correct we just know more today than they did um, then and that's why i asked the question what is, what is your view of human sexuality and where did it come from because those are the questions that actually made me begin to have a very skeptical eye towards our culture. And in 15 years, the culture has not disappointed me um, in terms of a view of sexuality that I think is harmful to people. Today, we're actually having less sex today than ever. The Atlantic recently did an article on this. The title of the article was this, Why Are Young People Having So Little Sex? And here, sort of the hook of the article. Here's what it says. It says, these should be boom times for sex. The share of Americans who say sex between unmarried unmarried adults is not wrong at all is at an all-time high. New cases of HIV are at an all-time high, or an all-time low. Most women, uh, at least, can get birth control for free, the morning-after pill without a prescription. If hookups are your thing, uh, Grindr and Tinder offer the prospect of casual sex within the hour. The phrase, if something exists, there's porn of it, used to be a clever internet meme, now it's a truism. Our culture has never been more tolerant of sex in just about every permut- permutation. But despite this, American teenagers and young adults are having less sex. And how is that? Like a culture that's actually doing this less is that a culture that's providing a robust, beautiful, flourishing view of human sexuality? If people are saying, "Look at this! Oh, I want to do that less," is that like a, is something beautiful being presented in our culture of sex? If that's what's happening. Or uh, today, pornography is is more prolific than ever. And in 2016, uh, people watched pornography for 4.6 billion hours on a single website. In 2014, a study showed that the the state of Kansas was the most prolific porn watching state by uh, per capita. In 2016 or 17, we were replaced by Washington, D.C. So now our law, our culture creators are, are the most prolific porn users among us. And by our culture's definition, this is okay, right? Desire plus consent equals freedom. That's that's so pornography is not wrong in that definition. And yet, how far is this from Genesis two? Not human two human beings united in powerful connection, not communion, but it's it's commodification where sex becomes images on a screen, impersonal, no commitment, no love, no concern. This year, our world will watch five hundred and thirty-five thousand years. Of pornography, so when someone says to me, "You know, like we just we just know more about sex today than they did in the Bible," I say, like, "I don't know about that." Or we're just we're less committed to one another than ever. That one common idea in our culture is that in order to to know if you're compatible with someone, you need to move in with them or you need to sleep with them before you get married in order to test the combat uh, the compatibility of that that person. And that, of course, that completely changes the design of sexuality in Genesis 2. that instead of, of being naked and, and no shame, all of my life, physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, all of it given to you before I give to my, myself to you in sex, instead now sex is technique. It's a test, right? Are you good enough for me? Will you perform well enough for me? For, you have to earn that commitment from me. That's one problem with this idea. The other problem with this uh, idea is, is sort of uh, humorously uh, put with uh, uh, Lewis Meads. He said this. He said, you don't marry one man, uh, one man or one woman, but many. And what he means is we change. I'm a different person than I was when Misty married me in 2008. And who knows how many men she has been married to in those 10 years. Right. Pray for her. The beauty of marriage is not finding the person that will fulfill your expectations so that you commit to them. The beauty of marriage is that you find the person to whom you say in the words of Moulin Rouge, come what may, storm clouds may gather, but I love you, I love you till the end of time. Come what may, come what may, I will love you until my dying day. That's Genesis 2. That is not our culture's definition of sex. Even though our culture produced that song, that is a Genesis two. That is a this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, love song. And our culture is saying, no. Why don't you make that person prove it to you? Don't just give them just give them yourself and promise your your love until their dying day. You don't know who they are yet. It's why when when people say to me, and and increasingly I hear pastors saying this. You know, when I read the Bible, it's just we just know more today they said some things and we, just, we figured some things out they didn't, I'm just like, really? I, I just can't go there. And it's why as a college student I, I doubled down on the scriptures as my authority because I looked out at the world and this has only been more and more true over 15 years of pastoral ministry, the culture's definition of sexuality, how it destroys marriages, it's given us the Me Too movement and the, the abusive actions of men towards women and sexuality. Our culture's definition of sex is a broken one, and the idea that we would import that into the church and leave behind Genesis two and redefine this—I don't understand. And whole churches are doing that. Whole denominations have done that. And I, you go live that story. That, that's fun. Jesus. I think gives us such a more beautiful. Picture of the indispensability of male and female, these two genders created to be united in one flesh, to create children, a blessing, to have this physical, vulnerable, intimate act between two different, the same but different, that is such a better story than the one I just told you. And so the two things um, on that one, if you're not a Christian, or you're, you're trying to follow Jesus and you're like, I, just, I have a hard time with the Bible's teaching on sex. That's why I started with, listen, you need explore two questions. What is good sex? What is that definition? Write it down. And then two, where did you get it from? Because for me, understanding so many of our, our ideas about sexuality we take for granted, were given to us from a culture that is so broken, it made me question the whole game. And go back to Genesis. And I, like, I was just thinking, where did your ideas come from? Who gave them to you? And two, if you're a Christian and you're married, y- your marriage should tell the story of Genesis 2. Because I am not interested in being a church of morally superior people who scold the culture about what they get wrong about sex. I'm, being in, I'm interested in being a church full of people who look at Genesis 2 and are like, Yes. We're going to live that out in joy, in communion. I'm going to give myself to my spouse in a self-denial, self-sacrificing way that we understand sex is not an act. It is a whole relationship. It is a whole life practice. It's not just two consenting adults. It is two people who have said, you have everything of me, everything emotionally, everything financially, everything spiritually, all of myself in complete vulnerability. That's why sex starts, and this is such a cheesy saying, but it's so true. It's why sex starts in the kitchen. Sex is not a single physical act. It is the reenactment of Genesis 2. It is bone of my bones. It is flesh of my flesh. Different, but the same, two people together becoming one one flesh together. And the fruit of this sexuality, according to Genesis 2.25, is they were naked and they were not ashamed. And how many of us in this culture, when it comes to our sexuality, have zero shame? Or how many of us? We're just swimming in it, Right? It's why when someone looks at me and says, Tim, those ideas are so old, and we just, we just know so much more today. It's, I mean, one's it it's just actually factually not true. Actually, our cur- current culture's view of sexuality was the view of sexuality in the first century, and the church said no. We're going to do something different. And actually, there's a letter uh, to Dionysius. It's written by a, a Roman. Who said one of, the, one of the reasons why Christians were so compelling and so many people converted was because Christians would share their possessions with other people. They would share their heart with other people. They would share their food with other people, but they would not share their bed with others. And their marriages were male and female, and that was it. And it was so dissonant to the culture, eventually the culture said, we want that. And Christians, we're in the same place today, and may we not, instead of letting our dissonant notes sound, like just sound out, we're different, we're weird here, that's okay. Like, let it sound let people hear it and let it resolve in something beautiful. Live your marriage out of Genesis 2. And yeah, okay, so that dissonant note too, sex is designed only for marriage. But there, there's a third piece, and this is, I think this is the real issue that we all feel, which the third dissonant note that the Bible teaches about sex is that the Bible says you do not need sex for a meaningful life. Or the, the the idea I hear often is that well if you if you say sexuality is only for male female marriage what you're telling people who are single or who experience same sex attraction that they have to be celibate for life and that's asking too much right a life of celibacy is asking too much and again I would just ask where did that idea come from the idea that someone couldn't have a meaningful life without sexuality and that's a terrible uh, that's a terrible message to people who have physical disabilities right well you can have sex you don't have a meaningful life it's a terrible message. But to, like, where did I, that idea did not come from the Bible. I mean, this morning, as Christians, we are worshiping a single guy who never had sex, who lived the most rich, beautiful, meaningful human life that ever was. Paul, a single guy, wrote half the New Testament, and even said, I am single and my life is so meaningful, I wish you were like me. Mother Teresa, Henry Nowen, There are the, num- the names of Christians who were single, are endless, who lived beautiful, rich, meaningful life. And our culture today says that's not possible. And where do we get that? Idea? Where did that idea come from? This culture, right? Because this culture would tell you that sex is God. Because right? the only thing of which you would say, "Well, I need that, and without that, I can't have life." That's 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 God level category. Right, the only thing that you can, you can go without and, and have a meaningless life, that, God is the only thing in that category. And when you try to put sex in that category, as a married person, that's not going to work out well for you. And as a single person, it's not, sex is not the end all of life. You can have a meaningful life without sex. The, the one thing you need, according to the Bible, for a meaningful, rich, full, flourishing life is Jesus. And then there are churches that are saying, no, it's, it's sex too. It's like, where, where, where are we the one thing you need for a meaningful life is Jesus. Church, do you believe that? Do we believe that? And if you're single this morning, your, your life is, is incredibly important in the season of the church's existence. And so tell the story of Jesus with your singleness. To show that the most important intimacy we have in this life, the ultimate story the gospel is pointing to, is not sex. It's not marriage. It's our intimacy with God, which is why Jesus said in the new heavens and new earth, there, there isn't sex. There isn't marriage. We don't need it because we will have an intimacy with God that will replace the intimacy that Genesis 2 speaks about. And to a culture that is drowning with the message, sex is God. A single life can powerfully respond, no, God is God. Intimacy with God is the richest most beautiful life. And I don't mean to say that's not hard. There's not disappointment with that. No frustration. It doesn't make romantic longings wrong. And maybe that's why the first person who discovered Jesus, resurrected into new life, was a single woman. A woman who had, we it appears was a prostitute in her life. The fruit of a culture that said, sex is God and we're going to use your body to teach that. That woman was the first person to see the resurrected Jesus, an intimacy available to her that no man in this world ever offered her. That we all struggle to believe this that a meaningful life can come without sex, and is only through Jesus, which is why it's not just that this teaching on sexuality only coming in this one area is so difficult. It's also why sexual purity is so difficult right being single is hard being married is hard expressing our sexuality only in the line of of the beauty of genesis 2 is something none of us have done in this room sex is a powerful god among us and our crowning sex as god is a culture our teaching and saying that sex is something no human being can live without that sex is so rooted to that extent in our culture that we're saying you can't have a meaningful life without it shows you not that we're we're healthy but that we're hungry Right? It's just we're starving. If we think sex is on par with God, if intimacy with another human being can must be had in this life or you can have a meaningful life, we put it in the place of God, which is not a sign of our strength. It's a sign we've lost something. Every uh, every single church I've ever served in, including this one, I have pastored and been close to someone who is gay. And I, I'm, I'm grateful for that because all of those conversations, and they've been personal and intimate, all of those have, have exposed something of my own belief. And I will never forget one of the first uh, of those conversations, sitting with uh, someone who was a teenager at the time. Her name was Tony, And she wanted to become a Christian, and she was uh, also she was a lesbian. And we were talking about that. And, and I don't remember precisely what I said, but I remember saying to her something along the lines of, of essentially what I'm saying now, which is the only meaningful life is one with Jesus. And if you, get, if you get him and lose everything else, you'll have a beautiful, rich, full life. And I remember, I remember saying that to her and God just asking me, Tim, do you believe that? Do you believe that if later today you lost everything and all you had was Jesus and your life was one of suffering and pain and brokenness, but you had Jesus, would you have the world? Do you believe that? Like, Do I believe that? Do you Believe that Because the questions about sexuality, about uh, our own thinking about sex, expose the most basic questions about us. And it was not until I was sitting down with a gay teenager that I finally fully reckoned with Jesus' claims on my life. That it's him and everything, right, or nothing. And if I try to import any of my own desires, my own wants, into a relationship with him, I'm not getting anywhere. That I can lose the world, and if I have Jesus, I've lost nothing. And maybe you're sitting there, why why should we do that? Why, whether it's your your sexuality or it's your money or greed, whatever your issue is, why why trade that in for life with Jesus, right? Why should we trust the Bible's authority on sex? Because it is limiting, right? It puts puts sexuality only within this very narrow category of male-female marriage for life. Why should we give God that? Think, what, what does every romantic relationship long for? Isn't it someone who will love you no matter what your flaws are? Isn't it someone who will, will listen to you even when you say dumb things? Someone who thinks you are, are beautiful and valuable and worth loving even on your worst days. Isn't it someone who is so committed to you they would give their own life for you? You have all of that in Jesus if you want it. He was he stripped sort of naked for you, He was put on a cross for you, He was put in a grave. you, And he came out three days later for you. And I can promise you this. No one will ever give more of themselves to you than Jesus. No sexual partner, no relationship has the healing, the hope, the beauty that Jesus is offering you. He will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. And yes, the Bible's view of sexuality is a dissonant note within our culture. And I don't pretend for a minute that in 35 minutes I could change anyone's mind in here. It doesn't fit. It's dissonant. It sounds wrong. It sounds like... A mistake until you let the son of God resolve that song on a cross where he doesn't just promise to love you until his dying day. His dying day is actually the greatest expression of his love for you. He trades your place on a cross for his own place on a cross. And Christians, that is our story. And do not trade that story, this Jesus, for anything. Let's pray. Oh God, we... We preach that, we say that, we speak that, and I, I just know the the reality of your love for us, your commitment, your sacrifice for us can only be a work of the Spirit in our hearts. Speaking of that now, it's like my own heart. Like I don't believe enough that you this is the extent to which you you have loved me, and so God, would you forgive me for the many times I've offered you part of myself, part of my life? held back something for myself out of a lack of trust, when you did not do that for me. You gave your own son. Your son gave his whole life into a grave to come out three days later. God, forgive us for offering part of ourselves to you. And this morning, as we wrestle with questions of our own past, our own shame, as we, we wrestle through the theology of this question, these questions, as we wrestle through the cultural moments of these questions, God, show the cross to us and your commitment to to us, that we would be made new. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.